When I was younger, I would occasionally enjoy setting up dominoes uh, with my dad. We did a bunch of other things together, but on occasion, we would sit on the floor, get a bunch of dominoes out, we would make an arrangement, we would make a setup, and then when we were done, we'd probably check with one another and say, is that good? Do we need to add anything else to this? And then after the setup was complete and we were done, we would have that chain reaction begin. You know the chain reaction I'm talking about. When you got the beautiful domino set up there and just with one domino being pushed, all of a sudden you see this chain reaction happening. To this day, I think it's a beautiful sight to behold. It's not like the miracle of childbirth or anything like that, <laughs> but, but, but it's still interesting to me that you could watch this unfolding series of events that all began with just one domino being pushed over. And it's like that when you come to the third chapter of the book of Acts. There is one domino, as it were, that gets pushed over. It's a marvelous event. This significant event that has significant implications for you and me. The healing of a lame man. But as you go through Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, you're going to see other dominoes that fall as a result of this domino, as it were, falling. The healing of the lame man is the domino that leads to, if you will, the domino of Peter's preaching and proclamation of Christ. And that's going to lead to Peter and John's persecution. And that's going to lead to, at the end of chapter 4, the church gathering together and praying. And all of these amazing events that happen in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, they are set into motion by the miraculous occasion that we see here at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. So what is this great event? Why is it so significant? What can we learn from it? What does it teach us and how ought it to impact us? We will see all that as we begin to study Acts chapter 3. We begin in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now when you think of dynamic duos, Peter and John probably do not come to mind. If you're like me, you're more prone to think of fictional characters or sports figures. But that just witnesses to the fact that we could miss how often these two are paired together in the scriptures. You go back in Luke chapter 5 and you see that they were fishermen together. You go to Luke 22 and you see that Jesus gave instructions to Peter and John to go prepare the Passover. You see that John was the one who brought Peter into the courtyard of the high priest in John chapter 18. You remember in John chapter 20, after Jesus rose from the grave, it was Peter and John who hastened to the tomb and found the tomb empty. And a little bit later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that both Peter and John go on a mission together to Samaria. So they were in some ways quite a dynamic duo. And the reason why I'm calling your attention to this is because when you go through the scriptures, even though we have not hung out personally with Peter and John, you get a sense that they had different personalities. Yet they were used mightily together in apostolic ministry. Although they had different wirings, although they had different dispositions, at least as far as we can gather as we're reading the text and so on, they were nonetheless used mightily together. And I think when that kind of thing happens in a local church, when you have people with different dispositions, different wirings, different personalities, different giftings, yet they're working together to advance the gospel, to see Christ glorified and to see people served, it's a beautiful thing. Reminds me a little bit of Peter and John. Different, though mightily used by God together. Now you'll notice in our text that they are found together 
going up, because when you traveled to Jerusalem, you were going up by way of elevation. So they were going up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So they're going up to the temple, and what were they going up there to do? Well, there are two likelihoods that come to mind, and they're not mutually exclusive. Number one, what comes to mind, looking at the text, is that they were going to pray. They weren't going to celebrate any offerings that were being offered at the temple. They knew the once and for all offering of the Son of God had been accomplished. But praying three times a day was a pattern that was embedded into the Jewish culture. More about that in a moment. So number one, they're likely going to the temple to pray, but I don't think that's all that they were doing. Number two, I think they were going to the temple at the ninth hour, which was a time where the temple precincts would be quite crowded because people were going there to pray. I think they were going there to preach Christ and to evangelize. And the reason why I say that, you scroll ahead to Acts chapter 5, verse 42, and we're told that daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So this is what they did as part of the early church kind of moving out. The apostles would be in the temple precincts preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Furthermore, the fact that they went up two by two, if you will, in that pattern that Jesus had sent out his apostles and then the 70 in that two by two form suggests to me that they were going not only to pray likely, but also to do evangelism and to preach Christ. Now a little bit more about that Jewish pattern of prayer. The Jewish people had a pattern of praying during the day three times a day. At the third hour, that's 9 a.m., that's when Pentecost basically happened, at around the third hour. The sixth hour, which was 12 p.m., and as we read in our text, the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. As an aside, when you think of the ninth hour, 3 p.m., you should think of John chapter 19, I believe it's verse 30, when it was about the ninth hour when Jesus cried out, it is finished. I wonder if the apostles and if John, who was there, thought about that whenever the ninth hour came around. But again, back to this Jewish pattern. They had a pattern of praying three times a day. You see this even in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Daniel is said to have prayed three times a day. The practice predated Daniel. We see in Psalm 55, verse 17, that David prayed three times a day. David said in Psalm 55, verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Interestingly, a little bit later on, you get into Acts chapter 10, verse 9, you're going to see Peter go to his rooftop at noon to pray. Even in the early church, you look at an early church writing, like the Didache, and in there was some instruction. It wasn't inspired instruction, but there was some instruction that was kind of passed down in the early church that Christians would pray in light of the Lord's Prayer three times a day. So this was a practice embedded in the Jewish culture. It was a practice that the early church apparently to some degree adopted, and it warrants, for me at least, asking the question, do I have fixed times of prayer? Do you have any fixed times of prayer? See, if you were a Jewish believer and you came to know Jesus Christ, you inherited a helpful schedule of prayer. It was just embedded. You're like 9 a.m. around that time or 12 noon around that time or 3 p.m. around that time. I know I'm going to be praying. So if you were a Jewish Christian, you inherited what I think is a rather helpful schedule. And I think sometimes we as New Testament Christians, because we know that we have ever present access to God, 
and that wherever we are, he could hear our thoughts, he could hear our voices, and it doesn't matter where we are. I think sometimes that beautiful reality can lead to us not taking advantage of the blessed opportunity to have fixed times of prayer. Fixed times of prayer. So I want to give you some pastoral counsel. My pastoral counsel would be, have fixed times of prayer in your everyday schedule. And so as to not feel intimidated by that, I want to give you a little bit more counsel. I want to say, attach prayer to things that you're already doing. What I mean is this. You know that unless the day goes really south, you're going to wake up. (laughs) You know, every day that you're alive, you are waking up. So what I would say is let waking up be a cue to pray. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I don't know. I don't have time to pray. You know, I'm running out the door. I have this to do. And I want to say a couple of things to that. First, I want to say, remember, a little prayer is better than no prayer. I want to illustrate that for you in a moment. But I also want to say, don't just settle in and say, I'm in such a rush every morning. I'm getting out the door by the skin of my teeth. Therefore, I cannot pray in the morning. You can wake up earlier. (laughs) Don't let that be an excuse. And again, even if it is a day where you wake up late and you're rushing, and I know there should be times of unhurried prayer, of course. I'm not saying that our practice should always be hurried prayer, but I'm saying a little prayer is better than no prayer. I conducted a little bit of an experiment so as to illustrate that. I was excited. I love my father. I could talk to him in any moment, my heavenly father. So what I did is I decided to go to my father and I set a timer. And I'm talking to my heavenly father and I was like, I'm going to set a timer for one minute. And I'm like, Father, you know what I'm doing here. I just want to see all that could happen in one minute if I'm just talking to you in an unhurried way. So I set the timer for one minute. He's my father. I could do those kind of things with him, right? Sometimes you're like, oh, you can't do that. No, I could do that. I could talk to him for long periods of time, and I could do this with my heavenly father. So I did. I set the timer, and I just wanted to tell him thank you. I wanted to tell him that I love him, and I'm so thankful for his son. And then as I'm praying, I'm not trying to force this. People just come to my mind. And I just start praying for some individuals. Started praying. I even lifted up myself in prayer for a need that came to my mind. And by the time that I was done, I prayed for six people over the course of 60 seconds, including myself. So I thanked God. I prayed for six people in that time. And if you were to do the math, you start doing the math and you say, okay, six people being prayed for in that hurried time, which hopefully isn't the norm, but it can happen. Over the course of a year, you would have lifted up 1,095 specific petitions. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that excite you? Like if you have a farmer that goes out into the field and sows five seeds, you're not expecting much of a harvest. But if you go and you start sowing a whole bunch of seeds, of course, bowing to the knee of God's will as it relates to prayer, but you are nonetheless praying to him, what the harvest might be is amazing. And you know, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. But I think we often forfeit praise that we could have. Because we would say, we've been praying for certain things, and by your grace, Lord, I'm seeing them happen. If you're not praying for certain things, you're not going to be as ready to see them happen. Or you're not going to be looking for them to happen. Of course, according to God's will. All right, a little bit of pastoral counsel, a little bit more. Something else you're going to be doing, unless you're fasting, you're going to eat at some point during the course of the day. So I would say, when you're going to eat your food, why don't you just exhale Take a moment, and again, even if it's for 60 seconds, you just thank God. 
He's given you daily bread. It's a reminder. Every time you eat, it's a reminder of your dependency. Daily bread is not showing up before you unless he provides it to you. And so you could be reminded of your dependency upon him. You're humbled in that moment. You're thanking him in that moment. And maybe you just think of some people to pray for. You're like, you've blessed me with this. Father, I seek to be a blessing to others. And I'm going to pray for a few people in this moment. It's amazing. Amazing to think. You do that and you're going to be praying for um, quite a few people over the, course of, uh, over the course of a year. Before, when I said I was praying for six people, you do the math there. The math is actually higher than what I said. It's 2,190 petitions you would have prayed. If you prayed for three people over lunch, that would be 1,095 petitions that you would have offered. Some of you are probably like, okay, I don't know where he got that math. There was something that I was missing there. Um, and then the other time I would say, is bedtime. I would say let bedtime be a cue for prayer time. So those are just some pieces of advice. And I just want to remind you, you're not limited by such planning, right? You can say like the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse uh, 164, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. He's using there a definite number in an indefinite way. To say, I'm just going to praise you all day for your righteous judgments used interchangeably with God's laws, his decrees, seven times a day. As the day goes on, I'm going to praise you for your word and your righteous laws and judgments. Well, with that being said, let's get back to the text. Luke, in verse 1, he introduces us to two main characters in this narrative, Peter and John. And then, in verse uh, 2, he introduces us to the third main character in this account, in verse 2, we read, And a certain lame man, a certain man lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now, this is fitting of Luke's style of writing. We might not gather this at first, but there is great historical detail here and in the entirety of this account. Luke tells us that this third main character was a certain man lame from his mother's womb. So he had some sort of pre-birth deformity, some congenital defect. He was in his mother's womb, and there was this problem that ended up surfacing after he was born. Later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, we're told that this man was over 40 years old. So for the entirety of his life, he had not known what it was like to walk. From the moment that he came out of the womb, he had this defect. And for all of his years, he wasn't able to walk. He was carried, as we're told in our text, or more specifically, given the imperfect tense of the verb here, he was being carried to the gate of the temple. Now, I think, perhaps, there is a bit of divine providence that is on display here. Follow me with this for a minute. The imperfect tense of the verb is used here in verse 2 and also in verse 1 as though to say the following, that this man was being carried up to the temple even as John and Peter were going up to the temple. It's as though the picture is painted of a divine appointment. They are converging on this location. Doubtless the layman's going to be laid there first and then Peter and John are going and they had, if you will, divine appointments to keep. God, according to his sovereign providence, would make sure they both, both groups, got right where they needed to be at exactly the right time. 
We're also told that he was laid daily at the gate of the temple. I want to say something here about his family. We don't know anything about this man's family, but I can't help but think of the role that they played in God's providence. According to one writer, to be um, disabled in the first century was a verifiable death sentence. And apparently there were some people that cared about this man, and they brought him daily, carried him daily, and they laid him by the temple. And why would they do that? Well, doubtless, in that first century context, and the reason why it was a verifiable death sentence for many is because the economic burden that would be sustained by a family having to provide for someone that couldn't provide for themselves or his or herself was a lot to bear. And a lot of people didn't want to endure that. So they didn't put themselves through that, and they exterminated their disabled child. But extermination wasn't an option for this man's caretakers. Every day... The people behind the scenes, family, I would presume, they're bringing him daily to the temple. And part of that is the hope that the financial burden that was placed upon the family would be lessened through the giving of alms. Now, the word alms here comes from a Greek word in the New Testament, elaos, which means mercy or pity or compassion. So when you think of alms, you're simply thinking this, charitable giving to someone in need an act of mercy, pity, or compassion through some measure of charitable giving. That's what alms were. So this man was laid daily at the temple. And the fact that he was laid there daily meant that Jews who attended the temple would have known him. You see that? He's there daily. He wasn't a plant by the apostles. They knew that this man was there. Like they've seen him perhaps for years. They're going to the temple. They're used to seeing that man as a kind of fixture by the gate called beautiful. And think of the irony of that, right? Think of the the study in contrasts. There's this man by this gate of the temple that was about 70 feet high or so on, 75 feet high, about 60 feet wide. It was overlaid in this elaborate Corinthian bronze, and there is this poor man right there, laid there every day. They know he's going to be there. They're used to seeing him. And one of the things I want you to see is that in God's gracious providence, even his suffering up until the moment of his healing had a purpose. At least one of the purposes is seen right here. All of the days of his lameness, all of the days leading up to this moment provided more evidence that this was a real and miraculous healing. None of the Pharisees could bring this about. None of the Sadducees could bring this about. This man was just there until this day when all of a sudden everything is about to change. And think about that for him. It gets me excited for you. It was a day just like any other day. He's going to the temple, probably expecting nothing more than financial monetary resources. But God had something much more in store for him on that day. Sitting at the gate called beautiful, it would become, I would argue, I would think, the most beautiful day of this man's life. We'll see that as the story unfolds. We'll walk through verses 3 through 5 here uh, to get some more details. Verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. So think about that. This man who did not have the ability to walk, nonetheless had the ability to see and to speak. And those abilities were used as conduits in God's providence to be a means by which he would produce a miracle through the interaction with the apostles. 
So he did what he was accustomed to doing. He asked for alms. And in verse 4 we read, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. They have to love that Peter did not avoid eye contact with this lame man. I don't know how many people did, but I'm sure some did. I'm sure some people were like, okay, it's this guy again, or I don't want to be bothered with this guy, and they avoided eye contact. Not Peter. Peter makes eye contact with him. Peter didn't feel too highfalutin. I mean, I'm a big-time apostle. Don't you know what happened at Pentecost? 3,000 people came to know Christ. I'm a big deal. I don't, uh, you know, interact with people of, like, you know, the lower rung of society and so on. No, he sees this man right there, and he makes eye contact with him. He fixes his gaze upon him. The language legitimately connotes a kind of fixed gaze, an earnest and steadfast look. And this man, who was probably overlooked by so many, not necessarily everybody, but overlooked as merely a lame beggar, was not overlooked by them. And I just want to remind you, that's how it should be for Christians. That's how it should be. You know, not, not too long ago, I would have um, pretty regular conversations with a man who would ask for resources, uh, ask for money, or just politely open a door outside of a coffee shop on Staten Island, and we had a whole bunch of conversations together. As a matter of fact, some of the neat things that goes on behind the scenes here as a local church, he was planning to come to service one day, and on one morning, Mike Diaz had drove down to pick him up, but he just uh, he wasn't there that day. He ended up telling me later on that week that something came up and so on. I told him multiple times, hey, hop in the truck and come to church. It'll be great. But one of the things that I loved was when he would tell me about other people who invited him to church or other people who talked to him about the Bible, things like that. I just love thinking that whoever else was interacting with this man, whoever else was showing him kindness or saying, can I buy you a coffee or can I bring you some socks or can I do things like that? Of all the people that you would expect to do that, it would be the sons and daughters of the living God. Of course, exercising proper discernment, especially in the case of the daughters of the living God and so on. But nonetheless, it was so fitting to think of Christians being the ones who wouldn't overlook such a one, but would seek to help and give the word of life. And so you have Peter here and John making eye contact with this man. But then they call the lame man to eye contact as well. They said, and Peter speaking here on behalf of them both, look at us. Now the tone must have been noticeably compassionate. I say that in light of the response we see in verse 5. Verse 5 reads, So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. So don't read into that phrase, look at us, like Peter saying, like, look at us. You think we've got money? <laughs> He's not saying something like that. Whatever it was, whatever the tone was, I don't know exactly what it was, it was compassionate because this man heard him and didn't get scared and didn't get you know, doubtful that he was going to receive anything. He was hopeful that he was going to receive something. That word that's used there, uh, apeko. Apeko is the Greek word for attention. So he gave them his attention. I just want to make a little bit of a brief aside here, right? So Peter says, look at us. This man gives him and them his attention, brief aside. That same word for giving attention, apeko, is used in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, to speak of how pastors and elders ought to give attention to watching their life and doctrine closely. 
So implicit, I would say, in the use of that word is a reminder to those in pastoral ministry, in the eldership, to say that we are reminded, even as this man gave attention to Peter and John, when Peter and John said, look at us. Pastors and elders ought to heed the counsel of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Watch, look at your life and your doctrine closely. And back to the narrative here. The lame man gave Peter and John his attention, and he was expecting to receive something from them. You know what he was expecting to receive? Alms. He was expecting to receive money, some form of charitable giving. Think about that. In his mind, on that day, his highest hopes were likely set upon monetary things. But he would receive far more than he asked for. Again, his highest hopes in that day, likely tethered to monetary generosity, but God had bigger plans in store for this man. Think about that. Somebody could just attend a corporate worship service on a given day and have pretty low expectations of what to expect. My first time visiting this church, don't know what to expect. I'm expecting some sort of religious thing to happen, maybe some singing of the songs to hear a guy speak. And all of a sudden, God exceeds their expectations, and they feel like they met the living God, and they came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God is in the business of exceeding expectations, if you will. I've said before, God's grace, we know it's amazing, but I want to remind us that it's oftentimes surprising. And that God so often exceeds the expectations of his people. You know, sometimes people can fan the flames of fear by imagining future events to be filled with oncoming trains that they never saw coming. But doesn't the scripture provide us with reminders that God so often has great blessings in store that a person didn't see coming? I think so. It reminds me, I was telling Lauren, it reminds me of Martin Luther. When you read about Martin Luther... Um, you read some of the biographies, Ronald Bayton's biography, you read some of the works of Martin Luther, you see that he did not go into marriage with high expectations. He, he didn't see himself as getting married, but eventually when he did get married, and in the moments leading up to it actually, he would talk about not wanting to be married, not seeing himself being able to be married, because he imagined himself dying daily the death of a heretic. That's a man who does not have high expectations for marriage. As a matter of fact, when he did get married, he said, if I remember accurately, he said that he did it to spite the Pope and the devil. (laughs) And some of you who know his story, you know that he ended up marrying a woman who was an escaped nun, Catherine von Bora, who was, I believe, 25 years his younger. And then one of the things that Ronald Bayton, for instance, notes in his biography is that he said that Luther thoroughly enjoyed his home. On the next page, I believe, he said, Luther reveled in household festivities. He saw godliness in his wife. But it's amazing when you read the account of the tenderness, that he, the accounts of the interactions that they had in the marriage, there was a tenderness and a love that developed for her. He said, I would not give my Katie for France and Venice together. One writer had noted that there was an occasion where Luther had chided himself for giving Katie as he called her, more credit uh, than to Christ because she had done so much for him. And I say that to say he entered in with low expectations and the God who is so kind exceeded his expectations. And I can't presume to tell you what God and will and will not do in your life outside of what is clearly revealed in God's word. But I can tell you, and we're going to see this a little bit more as the, as the teaching goes on, 
that God is in the business of so often graciously exceeding expectations. Maybe we would do well to pay attention to the expectations he has already exceeded in our lives, as opposed to just dwelling on ones that currently are unfulfilled. Well, that brings us to an epic line in the New Testament, an epic verse. Acts chapter 3, verse 6, where we read, Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So the man expected likely something like silver and gold. Peter told him, silver and gold I do not have. Perhaps, maybe for a second, the man was disappointed. But even if he was disappointed, it only lasted for a second. Because right after that, Peter didn't stop there. He continued saying, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There's so much treasure here. So much. First, I want to call your attention to what Peter did have. Peter said, but what I do have, I give you. Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to use language from Luke chapter 9, verse 1, to him as to the twelve were given power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Of course, this would be according to God's will. But even in Luke chapter 9, verse 2, we see that he had ability and authority to heal the sick being a uniquely appointed apostle and representative of the Savior. Now remember, Acts chapter 2, verse 43, many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. Luke is providing us with a for instance of that. And so Peter ends up giving this man what he could give him. Peter could be a conduit of healing. A little bit later on, we're going to see that Peter was used by God in conjunction with God's sovereign will. Because God purposed to glorify his servant, Jesus. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. And this man's faith, which came through Jesus, to use language from the text, Acts chapter 3, verse 16, was another component of what God used. Second, I want to call your attention to what Peter said when he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The fact that he said, in the name of Jesus Christ connotes that he was not doing this, as he will say later. Not by his own power, not by his own godliness, but in the name of, by the authority of, by virtue of the power of Jesus Christ. Think of how this alone, this statement alone, think of how it would distinguish Christ from other prophets, other men of God. Peter didn't say in the name of Moses or Elijah. He didn't say in the name of Samuel he said, in the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps, I wonder if it all clicked for the lame man in that moment. If the lame man had heard of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Wondered if he was a malefactor, a criminal. Wondered if he was a blasphemer. But all of a sudden, in this moment, when Peter speaks, the puzzle pieces come together and he comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How it exactly worked out? I do not know, but that's how it did work out. As we go through this account, we will see that this week and Lord willing next week. Third, I don't want you to miss this. Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah in what he said right there. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know this, perhaps some of you don't, but I want to remind you that Christ was not Jesus' last name. <laughs> my last name is Ippolito. George is my first name. My last name is Ippolito. 
Jesus is not Jesus' first name and Christ is his last name. No, Jesus is the name, Christ is the title. He is the anointed one, the Christos, the anointed one, the Mashiach par excellence. He is the promised Messiah. So even in that statement, Peter is proclaiming the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus. Fourth, I want you to see that he called Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's just a reminder that Jesus identifies with lowly ones. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was uh, the king of the Jews. We remember Pilate put that uh, on the cross, that title, but it didn't only say king of the Jews. It also said Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews, John chapter 19, verse 19. And fifth, the expression, rise up and walk. I think it's indeed a powerful one because you go through the gospel accounts and you see the Son of God using language like that. You see, when Jesus is by the pool of Bethesda, he said to the man who was disabled for 38 years, in that moment, Jesus simply says, rise, take up your bed and walk. John chapter 5, verse 8. You see, when there was that paralytic man who was brought to Jesus on a bed by others, Jesus said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Matthew chapter 9 verse 6. So what you're seeing in Peter's ministry here, Peter's apostolic ministry, is a continuation, if you will, of the ministry of the Messiah by the Spirit through the apostles. Amazing. I also want to give you a doctrines of grace observation. I want you to notice here that Peter, even as Jesus, in those aforementioned references that I just gave you, Peter, like Jesus, commanded individuals to do what they were powerless to do in themselves. And that's what it's like when the gospel comes to town. You are called to repent and believe the gospel. And you and I, in and of our sinful state, in our natural state, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're like the lame man exponentially, as it were. But when the word of God comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden in that moment, by the faith which comes through Jesus Christ, we're actually able to rise up and walk, as it were. We're actually able to repent and believe. So I just want to remind you of a doctrines of grace observation. Peter, like Jesus, commanding a man to do what he can't do. But faith was coming to him, Acts chapter 3, verse 16, through Jesus Christ. And in that moment, he would be able to do what he otherwise could not do in and of himself. A doctrines of grace observation. And also, I just want to call your attention to a, I guess, a wonder and awe application. Consider how great this intervention was. No surgery. (laughs) No medicine, natural or otherwise. And the Spirit of God worked a tremendous healing grace. I mean, thanks be to God for means. Means that God uses. Those aforementioned examples, for instance. But I want us to be reminded that God is not limited to means. God uses means, no doubt, but he's not limited to means. When means are absent or ineffective, God can, by his power, should it be his will, in a moment, heal. Amazing. Amazing. And so the miracle was about to commence. Look at verse 7. And he took him... By the right hand, that's Peter. He took him, the lame man, by the right hand. So picture a grasp that is both firm and sincere. 
It's an act of kindness. It's also an outworking of Peter's faith. He took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. And I wonder, I wonder if in this moment, see, if, if, if I was making like a, a video presentation of this moment, I'll tell you what I would do. I don't know if I would do it, but I'll tell you what I would think in my mind. I would flash back to when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Because when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, we're told in Mark chapter 1, verse 31, he came, Jesus, took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her. The ministry of the Son of God being worked out through his apostle. So Peter goes, grabs him by the hand, and we're told here immediately, the Greek word here, parakrema, instantly, instantly, his feet and ankle bones received strength. There's a lot I could say about that. Many commentators note that Luke, being a physician, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that he was a physician, uses words here that aren't used elsewhere in the New Testament. They're not limited to the language of a physician, but it may be indicative of both Luke's historical detail and his knowledge of the human anatomy as a physician. Luke here is calling attention to the fact that this man received strength in his feet and in his ankle bones. The word for received strength is a Greek word, stereo. It means to make firm or to establish or to strengthen. It's used three times in the New Testament. And I want to give you a quick illustration. Using, I want to use that as an illustration for what I'm hoping is happening right here today. Because one of the other times that word is used, stereo, to strengthen, to establish, to make firm. One other time that word is used in Acts chapter 16, verse 5, is when the churches as a result of hearing the truth and the decrees that were established at the Jerusalem Council, we're told that the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So even as this man in his feet and his ankles received strength, I hope that you are receiving strength right now. As God's word is being proclaimed, all of a sudden you feel your spirit being strengthened by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God. Now we come to verses 8 and 9. So he, that's the lame man, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. So again, a miracle that is the kind of miracle that we see Jesus do. A complete healing happened right here. The man didn't need rehab. He was completely healed. He didn't need to go easy on the legs. He was completely healed. So much so that he leaps to his feet. And again, I know I've said this a couple times before. I want to say it again. Here we see the ministry of Christ continuing through his apostles. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, for instance, part of the messianic age would include an expectation like this. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. And so what you have here is the works of Jesus Christ continuing. The messianic age, as it were, is continuing as Christ is working through his apostles. Very clearly, even as Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So you have the messianic age continuing. You have Christ validating his apostles' apostleship through the miracles that were happening. You have so many things happening here. And for this man... You have a moment unlike any other he had ever experienced in his life up until this point. He's up. He's leaping. And then he stood and walked. He didn't need a training period. 
So you got the miracle of strength so much that he could leap instantly. Then you have arguably another miracle in the fact that he didn't have to learn how to walk. I mean, outside of maybe like a second or two or something like that. And that's just, a, you know, we're just presuming. All of a sudden we're told that he leaped and he stood and he walked. Lame parts were granted strength and ability was immediately attained. And then he begins walking into the temple with the apostles. Because remember, this is taking place at the gate. They're not even into the temple precincts at this point, like inside past the gate. So now he's with them, and you could imagine, before we get to the reaction of the people, let's just get to the reaction of this man to his healing. What was he doing? Praising God. Now imagine people coming quietly to the temple, ready to pray. And all of a sudden you start hearing, I don't know what they're hearing, shouting, glory to God, I can walk. Jesus of Nazareth has healed me. Glory to God. Who knows what it was, but this man was praising God. There must have been a buzz that started to circle around the temple precincts as this man was able to walk, leap, and was praising God. And you could just imagine the people walking in and they start to hear the sound of praising. What's going on? Not used to hearing that. That's not the kind of thing that you would hear outside of the ministry of Christ. But now all of a sudden, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and those kind of things are happening nonetheless through the apostles. Interestingly, the text does not say that he was offering thanks to Peter and John. Doubtless, I would think there was some measure of thankfulness to God for them, as well as regard for them, but the text calls our attention to where the man's attention was. It was on God. And that's how it should be for us, right? When somebody comes to the Lord Jesus Christ like in this place, you're thankful for whoever God uses. But you're thankful that it's God who used them, and you're thankful to God as the one who saved you and opened your eyes. You have to love, verse 9, how this miracle was very public. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. So think about the purpose in all of those years that he was there at the, at, at the gate of the temple and he wasn't healed. There was a reason for that. And at least part of the reason was now all of these people would be in a state of wonder and awe. That guy? That guy's healed? More about that in a moment. I want you to see how God can do so many things through one thing. You will see this a little bit later on, but the fact that so many people saw him walking and praising God was significant for Peter and John. Because Peter and John are going to be arrested. But there's going to be a degree in which the religious leadership's hands are going to be tied because of all the people that saw this miracle. You're going to see that in the language they use in Acts chapter 4, verse 16, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 21. A notable miracle had been done. It was evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. So even the publicity of this event in this moment was used to protect his apostles in a later moment. The God who could do so many things through a single thing. Well, all of a sudden, this guy's walking and praising God. Notice he didn't care what people thought, by the way. He's just going at it. He's just praising God. And then verse 10 says... Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They knew. It clicked for them. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Again, this is the kind of context that accompanied some of the miracles of Christ. Think of the man who was born blind, John chapter 9. 
In John chapter 9, verse 8, we're told, speaking of the man who was born blind, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? So in the case of the blind man and in the case of the lame man, all of the years of them being blind or lame added to the amazement that the man who was known by some as maybe perhaps nothing more than the lame man or the blind man wasn't that anymore. We're told that they were filled with wonder and amazement. What did that look like? I have some guesses. The man is healed? I mean, really healed? Not just partially healed? So suddenly? So completely? And I would think part of it would be something like this. I don't know. This is my guess. Those contemptible Galileans? Those uneducated fishermen? They were the ones used. They're filled with wonder and amazement. Let me close with providing you with two applications and then some good news for the spiritually lame. First, let me encourage you. Just because things have been a certain way for so long, and I'm talking about not in a good way, in a bad way, whether it's marriage problems, whether it's brokenness, whether it's your own kind of physical condition, whether it's a disposition, whether it's a proclivity to some kind of sin or another, just because things have been a certain way for so long doesn't mean that it's always going to be that way. And I want to tell you again, again, I cannot presume to tell you what God will or will not do outside of what is clearly promised in His Word, but I can say this. You take somebody who is at the pool of Bethesda, that man who was lame for 38 years, or you take the woman who had an issue of blood for years, or you take the lame man who was lame for 40 plus years right here, and the whole pattern and trajectory of their lives would have said, that's the way it's going to be forever. But God is not bound by patterns or trajectories. He is the variable that produces statistic anomalies. And it doesn't matter what your history has been. Your life is not dictated by your past. God is greater than your past, and God can change your future, and He can even do it in the present right now if it is His will. So I would encourage you to live in a state of hopefulness that just because a thing has been a certain way, it doesn't mean that it will always be that way. And for long, as so long as it is that way, God has a purpose in it being that way. So I just want to remind you of those things. I'm not guaranteeing you what will or will not happen, but I am guaranteeing you this. If you are in Christ Jesus, everything, all things, not some things, but all things, work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. There's purpose in all of the waiting. And just because things have been a certain way, God provides us with a lot of pictures to remind us it doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. And second, I want to remind you of something I've told you already a couple of times in this message. God exceeded this man's expectations. And I want to encourage you to be reminded to think about when God has exceeded expectations in your life. When He has. I don't want you to dwell on those unfulfilled ones. That's where the first encouragement comes in. Just because things have been a certain way doesn't mean it will always be that way. And for as long as it is that way, for so long as it is that way, there is purpose in it. But I want to remind everybody, and this is in light of our Thursday night eschatology class considering the subject of heaven, I want to remind you that your expectations will surely be exceeded in the age to come and in the heaven that now is. Your expectations will be marvelously exceeded. And finally, for anyone who's here, 
who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ, I want to just tell you, you could leave here leaping and praising God. One of the reasons why I'm so happy that you're here today is because today can be that day. You saw what that day was like for this man. What will it be like for you if all of a sudden you hear rise and walk through the words repent and believe? And for the first time, you believe that Jesus is Lord. And all of a sudden, all of the weight of your past sins, all of the weight that you feel in the present, that guilt that you feel, all of a sudden it is dissolved because you know that Jesus Christ on the cross paid for your past, present, and future sins. All of a sudden, you feel not burdened by all of that guilt and you say, I can rise and walk because by God's grace, I've repented and believed that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And today, by God's grace, you could be one that King Jesus makes leap for joy as they leave. Beginning of a new life. For this man, this was the, uh, the beginning of a whole new beginning. It was his new life in Christ, and he's got legs with which he could walk and stand and leap. And who knows what God might do through your life as you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden you leave here today knowing that you're forgiven. Past, present, and future sins because of the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the grave. You have new life. It begins now. And it never ends. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are still making the lame leap, as it were. We thank you that the preaching of the gospel is still bringing life to those who are dead. And Father, we thank you that you are still exceeding expectations. We thank you that in the age to come, Father, we will marvelously uh, glorify your great grace as you, to use language from Ephesians 2, uh, demonstrate your grace in the ages to come to us who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for this text. I pray, Father, that you would help us in light of having heard your word and the beautiful considerations and applications therein. Help us to leave here, Father, leaping as it were in our hearts, praising you, thanking you for your word. And then, Father, according to your will, we do ask that you would help us to be encouraged, that you would help us to be compassionate and kind, even as we see imaged in your Son and imaged through his apostles as in this text, and that you would help us, Heavenly Father, to glory in the one who has made us whole. Thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.